Hello, good morning everyone. Pastor Mike here. I'm coming at you from the Brea office and uh, just want to give a shout out to my, my, uh, my family, my spiritual family, the Brea congregation here. Wanted to let you know that the staff and I and some of our uh, key leaders have been praying over our roster and praying for the members of our church um, by name, the regular attenders, the people who are involved in, in our community together. I uh, want you to know also that we are praying for perseverance and life change for us to be motivated by the gospel and to be empowered by God's Holy Spirit in a time of uncertainty and difficulty within our Brea campus as well as our, our church as a whole and even our society. Today we're talking about Jesus's glory. We see a passage in Matthew 17 here, verses 1 through 13, of God's glory revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And so it, it begs the question, we need to talk about what is this? What does it mean for us? How does it change our lives? And so I have three things for you um, this morning about Jesus's glory revealed in Matthew 17 in the transfiguration. Uh, one, Jesus's glory is a light in darkness. Secondly, Jesus's glory is a new reality. And then thirdly, it's a terrifying power that is in work within you if you uh, know Jesus and if you're a Christian. Uh, a light in darkness, a new reality, and a terrifying power that is at work within you. Let's talk about how Jesus's glory here is a light in dark times. And if we look to verses 10 through 13, we'll see some context that's important. Um, Jesus is in a dark time in his life from chapter 16, verse 21, where Jesus explains to his disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer many things, it says, and that he will be killed and on the third day raised to life. But it's in the midst of a dark season, a dark time, an increasing darkness, an encroaching darkness in the life of Jesus. It's like in the Lord of the Rings where the closer that Frodo gets to Mount Doom with the ring, the heavier the ring weighs on Frodo. The, the more the negativity and the hurt and the, the penalty and the burden of the ring weighs on his relationships with others, on his physical being, and, and so it is with the narrative of the Gospel of Matthew. So for context, um, the disciples in the passage ask Jesus, will there be a second Elijah as a forerunner to the Messiah? And his answer basically is, for their expectation from the Old Testament, his answer is yes, and that that person is John the Baptist. And in the same way that they killed John the Baptist, they'll also kill me. He's reaffirming his statement in um, Matthew 16 uh, with their expectations of the Messiah. And then in this passage, there's this moment of light before the story goes dark again. And so let's talk about Jesus's glory revealed in the passage. If you look in verses 1, 2, and 3, we'll see in chapter 17 that um, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain, a high mountain. Pay attention to that. By themselves. He then was transfigured before them, it says. His face shined like the sun. His clothes became white as the light, and then, um, and, and then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. In the exodus of the people of God, uh, God leads Israel out of Egypt with a pillar. During the daytime, it was a glory cloud. During the nighttime, it was a pillar of fire. And that's how God led his people into salvation in the book of Exodus. That cloud also, when it came down on Mount Sinai, shook the mountain. Um, 
and then the voice of God appeared, and, and there was fire and clouds, and anyone who touched the mountain died. That's how powerful God's glory is in the Exodus. And uh, as a parallel to our passage, Moses, God said that he couldn't see God's fullness and God's glory because it would kill him. Well, fast forward to Jesus' time. Uh, in Jesus' time here, they are on a mountain again. And the voice of God speaks in verse 5. And there appears Moses and Elijah. Elijah, who also had his own experience with God's glory in 1 Kings chapter 19. And then here it is again in verse 5, the, the, the glory cloud of God's presence. God's glory showed up. The same glory from the book of Exodus showed up. The, the same glory that Moses could not see, that the, uh, of which the mountain they could not touch, otherwise they would die, is now here in the presence of three just average Joes, Peter, James, and John. It, we're meant to ask the question, what's going to happen to these guys? Are they going to be crushed? Are they going to burn? Are they just going to incinerate? Are they going to melt like the end of Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom? What's going to happen to these guys once God's glory finally shows up? And so we see that there is something different from the book of Exodus in this passage. If you look in verse 2, uh, we see that the glory is not just a cloud, not just a pillar of fire, but is Jesus himself. In verse 2, there Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shined like the sun and his clothes became white as the light, it says. And now Hebrews 1 explains by principle what Matthew 17 tells us in the account of Jesus's life. Hebrews 1, the author writes uh, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the glory of God. He's the pillar of fire. He's the glory cloud. He's the full presence of God in human form. There's no other way, in essence, to see God's glory more perfectly than in the person of Jesus. That's what Hebrews 1 is saying. It's popular in our day to see Jesus as one of many people speaking on behalf of God or one of many religious personalities, one of many religious perspectives that attain towards knowing God. But this passage is saying, hey, believe that if you will, but he is the fullness of who God is. The obvious message and the claim of this text is that In order to get in contact with God's fullness, you have to come in contact with Jesus. And it creates now, for those who follow Jesus, a new reality. Um, The the Gospels were not books that just floated down from heaven. They existed in a culture. They comment on cultures around them. And so it's important that we know the historical context of this passage so that we can know the claim that uh, Jesus is making to these immediate people and the reason why Matthew wrote it down in his Gospel. Uh, Christianity in this chapter, is portraying itself as very different from other philosophies of the Greco-Roman world, the Greek and Roman world of the day. The context of the philosophy in the Greek world is broken into two main groups, the Stoics and the Epicureans, and they both believed in what they called the Logos, Um, and there were a few ways to get in touch with the Logos. The Stoics believed that everything in life happened as a part of this harmonious whole, all of the universe. Even today, you hear some people say something good will happen in their life, and they'll say, oh, thank the universe, or the universe had my back, or uh, I don't know what college I'll go to, but the universe will decide for me. And the Stoics kind of believed in that sort of thing. We've kind of maybe adopted that from Stoicism. They believed that everything in your life is fine 
because in the end, it's all just the circle of life, just like the Lion King. It's, it's the circle, the circle of life, pink, pink pajamas, penguins on the bottom, uh, because they believe that, listen, your life doesn't have this huge, passionate search for meaning. You're just a part of this large earth, this large universe. You die, you become worm food, a bird eats the worm. It's the circle of life. And so, Stoics believed, you have to remove yourself from attachments, remove yourself from the need for passions and asking these big meaning questions and trying to get pleasure in your life. If you remove yourself from that, then you'll find true enlightenment of a sense in your life. Those are the Stoics. The Epicureans believed kind of the opposite as a means of getting to know the Logos. They said that the meaning of life will be found in uh, treating yourself to pleasure in fun, in happiness, in discovering the ways that you are, uh, can be fulfilled with pleasure. And so if you fill yourself with, with pleasure and experiences and joy, then you'll realize the full meaning of what the universe has to offer. You'll get in contact with the Logos. Today, we believe a lot of these sorts of things. Uh, if you add a bit of individualism to it, then you start to see Epicurean type ideas in the way people live their life today. Like they'll, uh, people will say, uh, don't let anyone tell you about your personal identity because you have to discover your own identity for yourself. And so we kind of believe today that if you find this inner identity, then you'll get in contact with ultimate reality. It's in you. You just have to discover it. Decide what your identity is, what your gender is, what your sexual identity is, what your personal calling is, what your personal giftedness and passions are. And if you can figure that out, then you'll reach ultimate reality. Well, it's in a sense a form of Epicurean type belief. Uh, Luke Ferry explains how Christian thought replaced Greek philosophy and implanted into Western culture the values that we assume today. He writes, to the horror of Greeks, the Christians maintained that the logos, um, in other words, the cosmic principle was not a harmonious order of the world, but was a single unique personality, one outstanding individual, namely Jesus Christ. Um, that's why, knowing Greek philosophy in the day, the author of the Gospel of John, John, starts his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. John starts his gospel by saying, all of you are working to attain meaning, to find it within yourself, to go get pleasure, to, to remove your need for pleasure if you're a Stoic, and to live out the harmonious whole. All of you are fighting to get your life in line with reality. And what I'm telling you, uh, John says in the beginning of his gospel, that the Logos was always here. The full ultimate reality was here in the person of Jesus Christ. Luke Ferry continues to explain how this Christian thought has influenced the Western world today. And he says that the result of a Christian worldview in following Jesus, seeing him as the Logos, it resulted in love and human rights. It, he says, in the heart of the universe was not an impersonal force. That's the Christian worldview. Like the Greeks believed or, or Western religions believed, but a person, because of that, it meant an unprecedented emphasis on the idea and importance of love. By resting its case upon a definition of the human person and the unprecedented idea of love, Christianity was to have an incalculable effect on the history of ideas. It's clear to me that without the Christian reevaluation of the human person, the philosophy of human rights to which we subscribe today would never have been established itself. Luke Ferry is just explaining in a brief history of thought the fact that 
because Jesus was the Logos, because Jesus is revealing himself as ultimate reality, and we can now come in contact with him, that therefore what was created in the life of Christians and in the world that was influenced by Christianity was an unprecedented emphasis on love and human rights. Because Jesus is the Logos, then instead of just trying to get pleasure or try and manage our own lives to be strong, stoic individuals, instead, Christians are able to look to God as the Logos, as ultimate reality, as God's power and glory to a God who can be loved and identify ourselves now as people who are to be loved. Because Jesus is the glory of God, the knowable, magnificent power in the universe. Now what is changed in our hearts is God's love and the ability to know God and to be known by God. I have some friends who uh, they either don't know Jesus or they're not sure where they stand with Jesus. And many of them have made the point that, um, that though they don't have an explanation for why they believe it, they do believe that humans have value and that racism is wrong and that we should fight injustice with justice and love. I think everyone agrees with that belief. And yet, when you drill down to the reasons why we believe those things, Luke Furry is making the point that it's because of the influence of a gospel-informed Western idea. And I would certainly make the case then on top of that, that though Luke Furry is a secular author writing objectively about uh, what has happened in history, we can make the case that it is a gospel influence in many people's lives that allows them to say, love matters, people's lives matter, that fighting racism and injustice is a part of what it it's like to be a, a, a Logos-inspired person today. To find ultimate reality is to fight these things that are unjust. And so, how did love come from Christian thought? It's because God's glory is in a human person that you can know and love and be loved. And thirdly, I'd like to camp on this point for just a bit. In Matthew 17, we see that God's glory is a terrifying power that is also at work within you because of Jesus Christ. If you take a look in verses 4 through 8, we see that Peter tells Jesus, hey, I have an idea. Let's put up three tents. Pay attention to tents here. Let's put up three shelters. It's the word for tabernacle. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. In verse 5, while he's still speaking, in the middle of that sentence, then God's glory interrupts his statement, interrupts his idea, and overwhelms him. And then God's voice speaks from the cloud and says, This is my son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Um, this is a, a reiteration of what God says in Jesus' baptism in chapter 3. And then it adds, Listen to him. Pay attention to that. In verse 6, it says that the disciples heard this. And of course, their reaction was that they fell face down on the ground. They were terrified. And in verse 7, uh, Jesus came to them then. And then touched them. And he says, get up, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, all they saw was Jesus himself. God's power is terrifying. God's presence is a terrifying glory. And it's like that even when angels visit people in the Bible. They're constantly terrified. Why is that? Well, it's not out of ill intent. It might very well just be because that's what God is like. You know, another word for glorious is weighty. And in the end, 
Uh, say what you will about God, he is a weighty God. If he is who he says he is, if he is how he's revealed himself, then God, of course, by nature, when he shows his glory, would be weighty and scary. Because his goodness, his wisdom, his power and beauty would obviously reflect on yourself to say, I'm not powerful like him. I'm not good like him. I'm not glorious like him. It just shines a light on the darkness in our own lives. Not out of ill intent, but because that's just the nature of who God is. For instance, if you stare at the sun, it destroys you. It hurts you. It'll ruin your eyes. You have to make a funny face while you stare at it just to kind of do it for a a second. Uh, Not out of ill intent. It's just the nature of the sun to be that powerful and bright. Um, Another metaphor, another example. Uh, Sometimes we think we're pretty smart until we are around people that are way smarter than us. My wife and I used to frequent a a trivia competition. We would go every Thursday night at 7 p.m. and we'd hang out and we would do trivia. And we actually won a few times with different friends from Ambassador Church. We kind of formed a little bit of a team and it was really great. And then other people found out about that trivia night competition, people that were way smarter than us, and consequently, we don't go anymore. Why? We always lost. Once that group filled up with people who understood uh, the low level of competition that was existing at that trivia night, we never won. We would, lo- we would bring a team of eight people, and we would lose to a single person who was sitting at the bar half drunk, and uh, we knew at that point that it was time to get a new hobby. You can hang out with some smart people and realize if they're way smarter than you, you'll never catch up to their intelligence. It just kind of makes you feel dumb. In the same way, if you spend time around people who are just beautiful, just gorgeous, handsome, fit, shapely, it's not their fault. It just makes you feel like you want to go home and do a thousand sit-ups to try and catch up. You know, so you just spend time around beautiful people and you think, I just suddenly notice my pot belly more than I did earlier today. Not their fault. It's just what it's like to be around someone who's just gorgeous and beautiful. In the same way, God's power terrifies us. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, a religious person, a great human being, uh, says when he comes in contact with God's glory, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm unclean. Um, Job, when he comes in contact with the whirlwind, Uh, the whirlwind in Job 42, he says, I have heard with my ears now, I see with my eyes, and I uh, despise myself, he says, I repent in ashes. The point is that the infinite goodness of God means that we see our faults just by the nature of coming in contact with that kind of perfection. Our being simply cannot bear the goodness of his being, not in our state. Now track with me on this because this is an important point. What is a tabernacle for? You know, in the Exodus in Israel's history, they set up a tabernacle. In the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies where God's glory resided. And he, uh, God saw fit to have his presence in that Holy of Holies, in that tabernacle, in that tent. And in verse 4, Peter sees this glory, this amazing thing happen. And he immediately says, we need to set up some tabernacles. That's what the word is used. He represents tabernacles. It's not because he wants to protect Jesus from getting a sunburn. It's because he needs to protect himself from that kind of glory. So he sets up a tabernacle. In verse 5 and 6, then, the the cloud envelops these people, and God speaks, and of course they fell down. We know they covered their eyes because it says later when Jesus touched them that they opened their eyes, and they were terrified. Well, track with me on this. 
Um, the one thing that's unique about this passage is that these men didn't die. They were a part of the cloud, a part of the glory cloud of God that Moses himself was not able to be in. The Israelite people were not able to be inside the cloud. And these people were, but they didn't die. Why not? Because they opened their eyes when Jesus touched them, and then all they saw was Jesus. The end of this little story is meant to leave us with that image, that they looked to him. They experienced God's glory and in a surprising turn of events did not die. And then in the end, they saw the reason why they were still alive, Jesus himself. In Matthew 27, when Jesus died, the veil, it says, was torn from top to bottom. The veil that separated God's presence from the rest of sinful people as they made sacrifices in the temple. And that veil was torn that tells something about the result of Jesus' death on the cross, that God's presence is unleashed, God's presence is made uh, real, it's made working in the lives of these other people. There was something about their relationship with God and his glory and his presence that was changed by Christ's death on the cross. The veil was torn from top to bottom. Why? Because Jesus is the temple. Here we see imagery that Jesus is the truer and better temple. That's why Jesus can say in John chapter 2, Tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Speaking of his body, Jesus is the temple that shields us from the destruction of the terrible, overwhelming, awful, amazing, beautiful presence of God's glory. And now through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, the veil is torn and God's glory is in us. Now, I know I'm, I'm, I'm taking a lot of steps here, but I'm trying to walk you through a biblical narrative so that we can get our heads into uh, what's going on for the first century readers of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is saying, I'm the truer and better temple that shields you from God's glory. And through my death on the cross and reconciling that relationship between sinful man and a holy, wonderful, glorious God, now you can have God's presence with you. That's why in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul writes, don't you know, don't you understand through Jesus that you are God's temple? You, the church, are God's temple, not the church building, the people of God's spirit. And God's spirit dwells in you. With this reality in mind, let's do some application as we close with this sermon. Uh, If God's glory is in our lives and God is doing a work in us and his power is at work in us, that immense glory is somehow a part of our lives. And I could go into more detail. We just don't have time to explain all of the implications of what it means to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. But just knowing that that glory cloud, the fullness of who God is, is a part of our lives because of what Christ has done in reconciling us in relationship to God the Father through his sacrifice on the cross. Now, Let's think of ourselves differently. Let's look at how it changes our lives. Application. Glory means weighty and important. Verse 5 shows us that uh, God speaks in the midst of that cloud. It says, this is Jesus, the one I love. Uh, In him I'm well pleased. And then it says, listen to him. The Greek word listen is hupokuo. It means to hyper listen. It means to obey. N.T. Wright uh, wrote in one of his books that uh, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? He's talking about the fullness of Jesus. That the fire has become flesh. That life itself became life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. 
It's either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world, or it's a sham, a nonsense, and a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with, the say, with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Uh, N.T. Wright saying, there's a shallow world in between these two realities. It, either Jesus is who he has, he has revealed himself to be, or it's a total sham and a lie. You have to pick one. It's a shallow, fake, muddy, middle world in between that says he's an addition to my life, but he's not everything to me. And I think even people who are Christians, who have put their faith in Jesus, baptized, they're saved. And I'm saying that they are saved. Still live in that middle, in between, the muddy middle, where we functionally live in that shallow world most of our week, most of our month, most of our year, or specifically when trials come. We need to step back for a bit from COVID, from the, the disastrous trial that we're living in today, and say, who is Jesus? What is true about Jesus, no matter my circumstances? And if he is who he says he is, then my world is glorious. My life is impregnated with, it's empowered with, it's changed by the glory of God. I have a relationship with Jesus that is today, it's tomorrow no matter what comes, and it will be for eternity, and that Jesus is a glorious, powerful God. And it might cause you to look at your problems and say, that kind of glory is powerful over the junk going on with my life right now. Or you might look at your circumstances and say, because he's so weighty, I need to worship him. I need to obey him. I need to throw my life in his hands instead of feeling like I'm the only one that's in control of my emotions and my thoughts in the midst of COVID madness. Or you might look at God's gloriousness and say, you know what? No matter what comes in my life, I'm going to worship him because he's glorious, because he deserves it. I'm not going to worship my job anymore and be anxious every day about whether that's going to change. I'm not going to worship a person or their approval. I'm not going to look at my bank account every day and wonder when, I won't, when I'll run out. Instead, I can work diligently out of a heart that's been motivated and changed by the love and the glory of God and worship him and love him. And then lastly, um, he's glorious and his glory for the rest of this story is hidden in a sense. Chapter 17 is this wonderful moment where God's glory bursts through Jesus and reveals to Peter, James, and John who he is, and it's kind of kept secret in this chapter. They go back down the mountain, and he says, listen, don't say a thing until I come in glory when I'm resurrected from the dead. Jesus' glory is, in a sense, shielded and hidden for the rest of this story, and that might be the case with you as well. What I mean is, as Christians, we go through trials. God promises it. We still go through loss, we still make mistakes, we still hurt people and are hurt by people. Our lives are still difficult. But don't get it twisted, God's glory is still at work. In the same way that God's glory was still at work in the life of Jesus, His glory is still at work in your life. It may be hidden, it may feel suppressed at times, but that's why it's true when the Apostle Paul says that he considers our present sufferings to be something that's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You might be struggling now. It might feel like uh, evil is winning. It might feel like the world is falling apart. But in the same way that God's glory was at work through the death of Jesus Christ, through his suffering, through his pain, through his bloodshed, and through his death, God's work, God's power and glory is working in your heart, and he will continue that work until the day of Jesus Christ. I hope you're blessed by the sermon this morning. Um, I want you to know I appreciate you as a congregation. 
I love you. I know other leaders in our church and other pastors in our church, uh, they love you as well and are praying for you. And I, I know other people on this live stream are going to say the same thing. But if you need something, reach out. We would love to provide for you pastoral counseling, a meeting, um, a socially distanced lunch, uh, or something like that to help you kind of hold it together in the midst of this difficult time. Now is not a time for pride uh, or for individualism or for isolation. We need to stay connected. And so if you're not on a Zoom call, if you're not in a small group, uh, please reach out so we can stay connected and help you if you're struggling through something. God bless.